Our reading this morning will be taken from Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. <clears throat> now it's a we're going to read through verse from verse 1 down to verse 38 and the context of the passage is that God is speaking to the prophet while that prophet Ezekiel and the people of God, the people of Judah are in exile. They are in exile because of generations of idolatry. They ignored the discipline that already came upon Israel to the north as they were carried off by the Assyrians and now sometime later not benefiting from seeing how God dealt with their northern cousins. Ezekiel's book tells us that the south outdid the north in its idolatry. And now God has disciplined them and he sends them this message about their idolatry. In chapter 20, he rehearses his faithfulness with his people. And we have this continual contrast between their unfaithfulness, particularly in chasing idols, God's righteous anger, and then an extraordinary mercy for his namesake, for his reputation. He promises, or we see him over and over, be merciful to them. Ezekiel 20, verse 1. Now in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and set before me. So the princes of Israel sitting in front of Ezekiel. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Do you come to inquire of me? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them? Will you judge them, son of man? Make them know their abominations of their fathers and say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. I said to them, cast away, each of you, the detestable things of his eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me. And were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes. Nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them. To accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name. That it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and informed them of my ordinances by which, if a man observes them, he will live. Also, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. 
They did not walk in my statutes, and they rejected my ordinances, by which, if a man observes them, he will live, and my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. But I acted for my namesake, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, before whose sight I had sought them out or brought them out. Also, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands, because they rejected my ordinances. And as for my statutes, they did not walk in them. They even profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart continually went after their idols. Yet my eye spared them rather than destroying them, and I did not cause their annihilation in the wilderness. I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, or keep their ordinances, or defile yourself with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, and keep my ordinances, and observe them. Sanctify my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, nor were they careful to observe my ordinances, by which, if a man observes them, he will live. They profane my Sabbaths. So I resolved to pour out my wrath on them, to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. But I withdrew my hand and acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. Also I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them among the lands, because they had not observed my ordinances, but had rejected my Sabbath, my statutes, and had profaned my Sabbaths. And their eyes were on the idols of their fathers. I also gave them statutes that were not good in ordinances by which they could not live, and I pronounced them unclean because of their gifts, in that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire. By the way, that's they sacrificed their children. Uh, they burnt the child alive as a, as a child sacrifice. So he says, in that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire so that I might make them desolate in order that they might know that I am the Lord. Therefore, son of man, speak to the house of Israel and say to them, thus says the Lord God, yet in this your fathers have blasphemed me by acting treacherously against me. When I had brought them into the land, which I swore to give to them, then they saw every high hill and every leafy tree, and they offered their sacrifices. And there they presented the provocation of their offering. There also they made their soothing aroma, and there they poured out their drink offerings. Then I said to them, What is the high place to which you go? So its name is called Bama to this day. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Will you defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and play the harlot after their detestable things? When you offer your gifts, when you cause your sons to pass through the fire, you are defiling yourselves with all your idols to this day. 
And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. What comes into your mind will not come about when you say, we will be like the nations, like the tribes of the lands, serving wood and stone. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from, a, from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. And I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant and I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me and I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these words, even though they are terrifying to us, we see how you are. You are the only God. You are the living God, and every other substitute is no better than a, a rock or a piece of wood that men carve. We come to you this morning because you are the I am and not a God that we made. You are the self-existing God. Your perfections have always been and always will remain unchanged. We're not like you at all, God. We had a beginning. We change every day. We come to you because you are our creator and you deserve our worship. For us to be preoccupied with you and forgetful for a short while, forgetful of all the clamoring needs of our lives, the stuff that seems so important, God, we want to set aside right now so that we can look at what you are, listen to what you say, put our feet on the path that you made for us. God, we come to you this morning at the beginning of this week because it's the day that Christ raised from the dead for his enemies to make them his brothers and sisters, to bring us out of the courtroom and into the family room. We come to you because you are not only our creator, but our redeemer. And where else would we go? You have words of eternal life. We come to you, God, because we're a needy people, as needy as the first time we ever cried out to you. And you are an infinitely sufficient king. And the supply that you give us through your son, in your son, you give with both hands. And you are willing. So, God, we lift your name up this morning as our only hope. We thank you that you, for your namesake, have sent your son for your namesake. He bore the law, which we refuse to carry. For your namesake, he went to the cross. For your namesake, he was in the tomb. For your namesake, you raised him. For your namesake, he sits now at your right hand, ruling over all the worlds alone. For your namesake, you sent the spirit and the dam of mercy was burst. And every nation, and every people through these Hundreds and hundreds of years, God, the gospel has spread. So give us grateful hearts. 
God, we ask that you would give us all that we need this morning to understand your will and to do it, not just here, but we think of other churches, sister churches, churches we've never even heard of all across this world that gather today or have gathered or will yet gather in your name and they hope in you because you don't lie. They preach your word because you don't lie. They cry out to you and so we pray that wherever they meet that you would meet them. Turn your face toward your people, not your back. We pray for those in our own fellowship, the many families who are not able to be here because of sickness and those who are facing long-term and frightful illnesses. God, again, we ask that you would be their unchanging environment, that they would be aware of you more than they are of anything else, that they would find their soul's satisfaction in you, that they would set aside everything to have more of you. God, we don't want to be like Judah that continued to drift generation after generation, mercy after mercy. They seemed indifferent and blind and praised their idols instead of you. We don't want to do that. So open our eyes and stir our hearts to follow you, not in words only, but really to adjust our lives to whatever you say. Speak, God. We are listening. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are coming back again to the theme of following Jesus Christ. Can we be, dis- can we be discipled by Christ in this day? Though he sits at the Father's right hand, and it's been 2,000 years nearly since he discipled people, walking in Jerusalem? And the answer is yes. And one of the key components of being a follower of Jesus Christ, and not just a professor or a confessor of Christ, is that we want to put our feet on the same path that he put his feet on. And the path that he put his feet on is the word of God. And at the heart of that is the moral law of God, the commands And we've been talking a lot about that leading up to the command so that we could have the right approach, but it's not enough to have the right approach. We do have to put our feet on the path, and so we're looking at the first command today. And if you have your Bibles, that's found in Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You remember that in talking about the commands We talked about the fact that they really are written for everyone that God has created. It's because he's our creator that we're obligated to obey. It doesn't matter if you are an atheist or if you are unconverted or if you are a Muslim or a Hindu. You owe God wholehearted love because he made you and you owe him a a complete allegiance. Not diluted, not divided up between multiple masters. So the moral law, of course, applies to everyone. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. But for the believer, the one who looks to God and doesn't merely say, you are my creator. And the moral law is an expression of your 
of your purity and your rightness, but you are also my redeemer. And so verse 2 in Exodus chapter 20, particularly you understand what it means when God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Not a physical Egypt, but a spiritual Egypt. Not a physical slavery, but something much worse. A spiritual slavery, a slavery that affected every moment of every day. And not just when the Egyptian taskmaster is standing there demanding that you do more work. Uh, a slavery that uh, Augustine says, I made, the, I made the iron bars myself within my soul. Uh, a preoccupation with self. A love for a life where I'm the center of everything. And Christ has delivered us from that. So when we come to the law, we walk up to the law in a way that nobody else can walk up to the law. The Christian walks up to the law and says, the Lord is my portion. Do you remember Psalm 119? I have promised to keep his word. I will seek his grace with all my heart. I will set my feet on this path of his commandments. I will not delay. So when we come to the first command, we want to ask the Lord to help us to be doers of the word and not just people who hear and understand and have conversations about the word, but who, people whose lives are constantly being, whether in quiet ways or in obvious ways, constantly being adjusted to the word of our Savior. Well, verse 3, the first command that we are not to have any gods before him, it is the foundational command of all the others. And without this, it really is impossible to imagine wanting to obey any of the other Ten Commandments or doing or actually obeying any of them. If the heart and mind can be brought into harmony with what the first uh, command is giving us, then we find that all the other commands kind of flow like fruit off of the roots. Because if our hearts can be aware of the exclusive claims of our God, that, that if our hearts can be aware of the love and the loveliness of our Savior, so that we want nothing to be added to God, we don't want Jesus plus for happiness, Jesus plus for success, Jesus plus for satisfaction and contentment. If your heart is gripped by the realities of God in Scripture and you are glad for Him to be your all and in all, then the other nine commands will be a delight for you to keep and not a burden like John tells us in the New Testament. And they will be an expression of gratitude and of love, like Christ explains in the New Testament. And you will be able to wake up, and though you will not do it perfectly, and that will be a grief to us while we're still on earth, we can wake up and tomorrow morning we can say to him, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. God, I, I want to put my feet on the path of your commands. It is a perfect path. And it's a path that leads to the happiest of lives. But God, I love the path because it's the path that I meet you on. I get to walk with you. And religion doesn't have to be a thing that's full of Sunday terminology, but Monday through Saturday, God seems a very distant reality. 
I wonder as we look at this, can you see the perfection of God's character? In each of the commands, you remember we said that when we talked about the law as a whole, the law, the moral law of God, it's not arbitrary. It's not adjustable. Now, other aspects of the law can be adjusted. So if you think about the ceremonial law, one obvious thing that comes to mind is that if a person is bringing a certain sacrifice, and so God says, if you're going to bring a sacrifice for this, so for sin or, uh, you know, for a Thanksgiving offering, for a free will offering, if you're going to bring that kind of sacrifice, then it needs to be this kind of animal. But if you're poor, it can be this kind of animal. So God feels free to adjust the ceremonial law at times. We know that there are times where God has given very specific regulations about how to go about the feasts, like the Passover. But we read in the Old Testament at times, especially in the life of Hezekiah, when the whole nation seems to be turning back to the Lord and they're repenting and they want to celebrate again the feasts that honor God and they've turned their hearts away from idols. But there are not enough priests and Levites who have been ceremonially purified to accept all these sacrifices. And so Hezekiah pleads with the Lord and says, God, will it be okay if we do it this way? And God says, yes. And then they, they double, instead of doing one week, God, will it be okay if we do two weeks of celebration? And yes. But you will never find God adjusting the moral law because it's not arbitrary. It's rooted in who God is. It's not 10 hoops that God puts out in front of people to see if they're really serious about being the right kind of people. So God doesn't give these hoops and say, okay, well, let me see if you're really serious about following me. We'll try these 10 things. That will prove whether you're serious or not. It's not that way at all. Because of who he is, because of his moral purity and perfection. There are things that God has always loved. And there are things that God has always found detestable. He's hated them and they will never alter. They have not altered in the past. The cross did not change them. The sending of the spirit and the preaching of the gospel has not changed them. And an eternity in a new heavens and new earth will not change them. And these are things that are summarized in the moral commandments, in the Ten Commandments. And these are things that God writes, Jeremiah says, and Hebrews reminds us, in the new birth, these are things that God writes over our hearts so that we love, in some measure, what God loves now. And we hate what God hates now. You remember the statement that Samuel Rutherford made? Uh, he wrote a letter to a church member who was struggling. He was in prison for preaching. He writes a letter back home to a church member who's struggling with this thought. How can I be a real Christian if I can still sin, especially in some of the ways I used to before I came to Christ? And maybe I'm not a Christian at all. Maybe I've deceived myself. And so Rutherford gave a list and he said, well, these are some ways that you can discern between a true follower of Christ and a hypocrite, a person that just wears a mask. One of the things in the list, and the one that I find probably most helpful, he said, if sin is no longer your darling that you protect against God, but now is your greatest grief. He didn't say, 
if you never sin the way you used to sin again, well, then obviously you're a Christian. You can still sin. You can still walk off the path of God's commands. And you can still do it in, the, in many of the shameful ways that you did before you embraced God through the gospel. But you cannot be okay with it, can you? It is our grief that we still sin against a God who is not just our creator and a king, but our father and our redeemer. Well, back to the commands. They're not arbitrary hoops. They are based in the moral perfection of God. It's like shining a bright light through the character of God. And it breaks the light into all this prism of color. And we have all these moral statements. Because of what kind of a God there is, this is the kind of life we should live. When you look at each of the commandments, you ought to be able to see something of the perfection of God's character in the commandment. And some of them, I think, are so very obvious, and some maybe we'll have to work and think about together. But the first is obvious. Because of the moral perfection of God, this first commandment is first. You are not to have any other gods before him. Because God is who he really says he is, and because the idols are never what they say they are, do you understand that it would be wicked if God did not command us to remove from our hearts and lives every competitor, every idol? If God said to us, well, now that you're saved by grace, uh, it's okay if you allow idols to kind of have a, a sanctuary in your heart and mind. God would have to be immoral to say to us, idols are now okay. It is because he is the God and because he is our life. And it is because every description that you have of him in scripture is an understatement and not an exaggeration. And it's because that you belong to him that it is a picture of his moral purity and not self-centeredness in the way that we think of selfishness. That the very first command is this. I am to be the focus of your soul and no other. There's a lesson in the first that is found in the verbs that are used in the Ten Commandments. And so it's not easily spotted. You can't see it just in the English, but you can see it in the original language. And so let me give it to you. The lesson is simple. Every command except for one, is a command that is given in the second person singular. So second person, you, singular. Not you, plural. And the only one, the fourth commandment, uses a Hebrew infinitive. So it, the, the, the infinitive, the two, you know. Um, and we translate it like the others, and so you don't notice it. But every time a command is given using a, the, the pronoun you, it is you singular, you singular. Now, it's strange. Think about it. We know that the Ten Commandments were to be read to the entire nation of Israel. We know that the substance of the moral law is written on everyone's heart and the conscience is bothered when we disregard these. We know that it's not just Jews 
But everyone who owes the Lord this obedience, every king in Israel had to write out the complete law of God, and so they would be acquainted with this. And God commands later that every Jewish family would turn and teach their children these laws. So why is it used singular? It's even more strange when you look at the New Testament and see how many of the commands in the New Testament in the epistles, these commands are in the you plural, the second person plural, you all. So commands that we think of that might, you know, you might think of them as, well, that's a very personal individual command, like Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. The yous and all of that are plural. All of you in this church be angry and all of you don't sin and all of you don't let the sun go down on all of your wrath and do not give a, the devil an opportunity in any of your life. Uh, Ephesians 4 verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Plural, you all don't grieve the Spirit of God. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17, pray without ceasing. Plural, you all. But when we come to the Ten Commandments, it is singular. Each of you. You specifically. I'm not talking to the whole group now. I'm talking to an individual. So it would be like coming to verse 3 and God saying, You, not all of you, but I mean each of you. So that means Elizabeth Baggett, you cannot have any gods before him. And neither can you, Chuck. And Neither can any of us, each one of you. So there are some implications that are simple, but it's easy to overlook them. The first is this. That means it is your responsibility and you will have to answer individually before the Lord what you did with this command. It's your responsibility to see that you root out every idol in the heart or life and you don't have any gods before him. And that means if all your friends decide that idols of the heart are fine, then you will have to, you will have to take a different path than your friends. And that means if the people in the church that sit next to you think that idols are fine, you're going to have to take a different path. And that means if your parents think that idols are fine, then you're going to have to take a different path from your parents. And that means if the pastors of your church say that idols are okay, then you'll have to take a different path than your pastors. But it doesn't matter what anybody says or does around you. It doesn't matter if you're surrounded by really helpful examples or hypocrisy. Every one of us, you, each of you, God says, must make sure that you don't have gods before me in your life. God will not call you before him and ask you, what about your parents? And what about your friends? And what about your church leadership? He will ask you about you. What did you do? Did you remove all gods from before me? The reason I read that long passage in Ezekiel 20 is not just because it continued to mention idolatry, but it mentioned two, two pretty sad things in particular. One is, right at the beginning of Ezekiel 20, who is meeting with the prophet? Well, it's the leaders of Israel. It's the spiritual, political leaders, and they've come to the preacher. So they're coming to church, so to speak. And they're asking the preacher, tell us what God says. And, and we want you to 
we want you to pass on our, uh, our message to God. And God says, should I be inquired of them at all? In other words, should I pay attention to anything they say? Should I answer any request they give? No. Because why? Because they've set up idols in their hearts. They are exiled to Babylon for idolatry. They've lost everything. Read the book of Lamentations. They've lost family. Old and young are butchered in the street by the Babylonians. And now they, for 70 years, are living in a foreign land. And they still have idols set up in their souls where nobody but God sees. And so God will have to say to Israel over and over, over, do not follow after the idols of your spiritual leaders. But also in that passage, we read that God said to the people many times, to the children of the idolaters, do not follow your parents in their idolatry. Well, we mentioned in our prayer meeting earlier this morning that Sometimes a a godly parent will have a child that walks away from the God of their parents. And, you know, you plead with them, don't do that. But there are some times where a parent who wears the mask of religion, but has a heart full of idols. And God has to say to the children, whatever you do, don't follow mom and dad in the way they do religion. And it's very possible that God would have to say that to our children If we don't take the first command seriously, you individually, each of us is required to keep the first command. Second implication, you singular, you individually, you cannot listen to what we're saying this morning for someone else first. It's so easy to sit in church and when you have people you do care about, you think, I wish they were here. They're not here. You know, they're sick this week or, or they don't come to church anymore. I wish they were here to listen to this. But you cannot listen to the first command for someone else. In fact, you can't listen to any of those commands for someone else. Not until you do something first. And that is you listen for yourself and you apply it. So moms and dads, and we think, I wish my child were here. Well, you can't listen for them. You can listen for yourself. You can't look across the church and say, I'm glad so-and-so is here because they need this. You have to start with yourself. What will you do with the first command? Will you adjust your life to obey the Lord and to do his good pleasure out of love? Or will you listen for someone else and say, they needed that? That includes pastors. That includes young children. That includes the elderly. I hope that we're not under the false impression that as we get older, idolatry gets easier to deal with. I find that it does not get easier to deal with because as we get older, it's kind of like in normal life, things tend to accumulate every year you get older. So, you know, you hear people that will say, well, we sold our house and we moved to another house and man, we did not realize how much stuff we accumulated. I, I don't think, you know, I don't know how we're going to move it. We're going to have to have a yard sale because we can't fit it in the smaller place. Things just accumulate without us maybe noticing. 
Spiritually, it's the same. As we get older and we look back on all the kindnesses of the Lord through the years, maybe you can look on the way that God has used you to help other people genuinely. It is easy to accumulate pride and little reasons that we feel that we are special. And while other people have to take the Ten Commandments seriously, we take them in general, but we're allowed a few options. We're allowed to cut corners. It becomes easy to do that as you get older. And so it will become easier to add a few idols to your life as you become an older believer. Think of Gideon. When he's a young man and leading the armies, how careful he is to put down idolatry. Do you remember he destroyed the idol that his dad was the, was the town's chief priest of, the Baal? But when he's an old man, he takes the gold that he was given as a reward for leading the armies and he makes a golden ephod. It's a, a part of the priest's it's like a breastplate that goes over the priest's robes. And he sets it up, this golden ephod, he sets it up in his home. And the Bible says it became a stumbling block to his family and to the entire people because they worshipped it. You remember Solomon, who with wisdom from God, guides the nation so well. And God entrusts him with making the temple. And he does everything God wants. But as an older man, he takes the money out of the out of the royal treasury and starts to pay for the establishment of idolatry throughout the land because his wives want it. You remember Asa who leads the nation in repentance of this idolatry years later, but as an older man, when he has a disease in his feet, instead of crying out to the living God, he sends an official over to the neighboring pagan nation to ask, does your God, do you have a God of feet over there? Maybe you have a podiatrist God to do you have a God that can do something about this? And it grieves God that after a lifetime of faithfulness, Asa turns to an idol. It is not easier to guard the heart against idols as you get older. But you must because there is this singular, you yourself. You can't listen for people that are not here and are never here, but you see them online who say, the law is not for the Christian at all. And you go, oh, they don't, they don't understand anything. And so you quote the Puritans and you, know, you quote Spurgeon and, and you take what we're talking about on Sunday mornings and you put it in social media to try to straighten out the universe and you do no good and cause a lot of ruckus. And maybe you feel really righteous about that, but have you taken the singular pronoun you to heart. You. You. Just you. God is talking to you and you have got to deal with this issue of idolatry every day of your life. It's always a good rule. Don't talk to anybody else about what you've been reading or hearing and learning until you have found a place that it fits in your life until your life has been changed by it. Otherwise, it tends to become just plastic, you know, hollow, even though it's true. So when we come to the laws, we're looking at this, this second person singular, each one, you yourself, each of you. God requires you to remove every idol from before him. Well, he says you're to have no gods before me. What are these gods? Well, we talk about this a lot. 
the idols of the nations, the idols that are made out of stone and wood and gold and silver and bronze, or the idols that are made in our imagination that just live in our hearts. They are things that promise you what God promises you, but they can't give it to you. They are things that promise that you can have all that you need for happiness and you get to stay at the center of everything. So really, idols are imitations of God. We treat them like they're gods, and that's why the Bible calls them gods with little g. These gods, these idols, they are these ideals in our mind that it's like we take the real God and we refashion him and shrink him, and we say, well, this is the kind of God I would prefer. This is a God that promises me everything I deserve and everything I need for completeness and contentment and happiness And he will give it to me at half the price of the God of the Bible. And I get to remain in charge. So there's certain things that are always noticeable about idolatry. One is there will be a cost. You will have to pay the idol. You you have to sacrifice. You have to bring something. That's the way it always works. And whatever you pay the idol, you will be robbing God to pay the idol. Because what you're giving the idol belongs to God. You give the idol your hope, your expectations. You know, you give the idol, whatever it is, when you wake up in the morning, you give it your first thoughts. Why am I getting out of bed today? Because of this. This gets me out of bed today. This will make me happy. And you give the idol your time. And you sometimes you'll have to sacrifice your family for your idol. Another mark of idolatry is that you never actually get anything back from the idol that it promised to give you. It's all false advertising. Like sin, the idol comes to your life to steal from you, not to give to you, to kill, not to bring things to life and to destroy, not to build up. Another mark of an idol is that it never minds sharing you with the real God. So, being a member at Christ Church New Albany, is just great in the mind of your idols. It doesn't mind that you want to worship God on Sunday morning. It doesn't mind sharing you. The living God is so different. Sometimes idols are made out of things that are just nice, good things that God gives us. You think of the ancient idols. Wood, gold, silver, stone, whatever it is, God gave them that, and there's nothing wrong with the wood, the gold, the silver, or the stone, but it's being misused. But in the modern world, where we're not building idols like that necessarily, generally it's the gifts that God is giving you, the relationships, the money, the talents that you have, the church. You use these things instead of, in, instead of having them in the soul And remembering they are gifts from God, which makes you love God more, they shift into the wrong part of the heart and they become the great love of your life. And so the gifts replace the giver. Let me read you a couple of quotes by a modern author on idolatry and on God. He says this, God is jealous. He holds on to his position At the center of all things, he will not forsake his position of authority or give his control to someone else. He is the center. He is the supremely important one. 
and the Lord of glory. Your understanding, speaking to the Christian, of everything in life must begin there. Again, the writer says, your life is not about you. It's about him. It is vital to know that you were born into a universe that by its very nature is a celebration of God. It's only when God is in his proper place in your heart, at the center of everything, that everything else in your life will be in its right place. No gods, no substitutes, no gifts, no hopes crowding into the place of God. Next, the command says we're not to have any other gods before him. What does the little word before mean? It's easy to misunderstand. You might think, oh, so God is talking about before as in priority. So a simple illustration, imagine a life that has kind of a lot of things that it's hoping in. This will make me happy. And so it's kind of like a, a line of little gods. And when you read the first commandment, you think, okay, I've got to put the God of the Bible first. So God of the Bible, you, you move to the front of the line. You, you other gods, you got to, sorry, you got to move back a little. He's first. You don't get to come before him. So we think of priority, you know, how you plan your day. What's your priority? Is it God or is it you? Is it God or is it this thing you think will make you happy? Well, that's true, but that's not what it's saying in the command. That's just an application that God is first in priority. The word before here means in my presence. You are not to let any idol into your life because it will be right in front of my face, God could say, God who is everywhere, who knows everything. He searches our heart. Do you remember Psalm 90? Later, years later, Moses is writing again. The one that wrote verse 3 in Exodus 20, now he's writing a psalm. And in the psalm he says, God, you have placed our iniquities before you in your presence. Our secret sins are in the light of your presence. God sees the heart. God searches our motives. God knows what we think of when we come and sit in church and we're waiting for the sermon to be done. God knows what we think when we're up late at night and no one is around us, when we're driving our car, when we're texting or emailing. God knows the heart. And you are not allowed to have any idol. That idol will be right in front of God's face, wherever it is in your life. In the book of Ezekiel, he mentions the people going into the promised land. And when they walk into the land, they look and they see beautiful green hills and leafy trees. What in the world is he talking about? He's talking about the high places. And these are beautiful spots, you know, beautiful, naturally beautiful spots, you know, lookout points. And when people are traveling through the land, they say, this is such a beautiful place. It would, it would, it would work perfectly for a little worship shrine to the God of this or to the God of that. And they would make on top of these beautiful little hills and these scenic areas, they would make a shrine and worship a false God. And you can do that with your life. The many, many beautiful things that God gives you, you can turn it into a high place. Your marriage, the child you're expecting, the grandchild, the church, time, anything. 
you can turn it into a high place where you worship that instead of God. If we're going to avoid allowing idols in our lives, which will be right in front of his face, they will be before him in his presence. If we're going to avoid that and keep this command, then we're going to have to wake up in the morning and answer a simple question. Who is God to you? Not the question, who is God? Because that's already answered and we don't, we, what, what we think about who God is doesn't really change anything, does it? Do you remember Isaiah 45? Isaiah writes, I am the Lord and there is none other. Besides me, there is no God. From the rising to the setting of the sun, there's no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. During the same time as Isaiah lived, Hezekiah prays. And in 2 Kings 19, we read this. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Surprisingly, it's not easy for humans to answer the question, so who is God to you? Well, we have spent our, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, we have spent our time coming to the spiritual realities of life, like we're coming to a, a menu at a restaurant and we're looking to see what options are available. I want a God that tastes the way I like God's to taste and he's going to offer me the things I feel are most valuable. Okay, so I see that part of the menu. This is my favorite part. Now, these gods promised me all that. These things in my life promised me that kind of happiness. Now, I want to pick those that cost the least. But is that really an option at all? One great step we can all make going forward is to wake up in the morning and say, well, who is God to me today? And you can do that if you struggle by comparing the living God with the idols. I think of it. There is the I am, and then there's the idols. We, we can nickname them the are nots. The I am God, the self-existing God who really exists, and then the are nots, the gods that we make that really aren't gods. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no one, no God but one. So yeah, you can make an idol, but when we talk about multiple gods and not having other gods before him, you, Paul says, you do understand there aren't any other gods. These are things that you've decided to worship, but that doesn't make it a god. So you have the I am or the are nots. What person would want to spend their whole life serving the things that really aren't when you could walk with the one that is? Another comparison. There is the God who acts and there are the gods that you have to act upon and for. One simple illustration, and the Old Testament does this over and over. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they mock the idol's of humanity. And one of the things they mention is this. 
You know, when you travel from place to place, did your God ever pick you up and carry you? Well, like, well, of course not. But you picked up your God and carried it. You said to the kids, hey, oh, don't, don't forget the idol. You know, be careful. Bring it here. Do you want a God that does not act and you have to act for it? You have to make the idol. You have to support the idol. You have to dust the idol off. You have to carry it to the next place you live. And then there's the living God. Think of the passage in uh, Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. Their idols, so he turns and looks at idols. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, they can't speak. Eyes, cannot see. Ears, cannot hear. Noses, cannot smell. Hands, cannot feel. Feet, cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Well, we made all of those for them. We made their mouths and eyes and ears and noses and hands and feet. And we made a throat for our idol. But those idols have never used them once. Is there any comparison? You can belong to the God that is. You can belong to the God who acts in the lives of those who worship him, who rules, who does what he says, or you can belong to the the are-nots, the idols that never provide what they say because they actually never do anything. Let me bring together a few practical helps for really obeying Verse 1, and next week we'll look at the aspect of not just of giving ourselves wholeheartedly to the God, but of guarding against losing that first love. But for today, a couple of practical aspects. I want to remind you that the law is a map. It shows the path of love to God and to humans. How do I love him with all my heart and soul and mind and strength? Well, look at the moral law and all the ways it can be applied. And how do I love my neighbors myself? Well, look at the moral law and all the ways it's applied. So it's a map. But you do remember, we've been talking about this a lot. The map never gives you the strength and the energy to walk the course. It can show you where the path goes, but it cannot give you the energy to climb the hills and to keep moving. Romans 8 verse 2. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And later he says, God did this through his son, that which the law, capital L, could never do. So the law of the spirit of life in Christ or the law of sin and death, which is it? There is an internal regulating power in your soul. There is something that governs and guides and fuels your choices. And if it, is, if it is, as a Christian, the work of the Spirit, then that will put, moment by moment, it will put down the old regulating influence of self-centeredness and sin and death. But the law, the written law of God, as perfect as it is, it never put down the strength of sin. It's not designed for that. It shows us the right and the wrong. It doesn't give you the strength to do the right. Only God does. So we don't wake up tomorrow morning and say, okay, I know what I'll do. 
I will use this first command to fix myself, to fix my marriage, to fix my kids, to fix our church, to fix our nation. No, we wake up and say to him, you said that if we walk by the Spirit, that we would not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You said that the Spirit, as that operating principle, that regulating power within, that as we walk in harmony with him, that that would enable us not to walk according to the old power of selfishness and sin. So God hears the command, and I desire to put my feet on that path. I don't want any God but you in my soul. But I need you. Because I know that if you leave me to myself, I will drift off before the morning gets going. I will be drifting off to some other thing that promises to satisfy. And again, it's not enough to say, I, okay, I'm not going to have any idols. In this, as in so many other ways, a good offense is the best defense. If you want to run the other lovers out of your soul, one of the things you need to be constantly doing is looking at the love and loveliness of your rightful God, of your rightful spouse, until the soul, you know, in a united way, the heart, the thoughts, the desires, the choices, it all comes together and says, it's Christ for me, not Jesus plus. And that means you're going to have to give time to set him before your eyes using the scriptures every day. When I was first converted, and um, I had already started to buy Christian books because I had thought I was a Christian from age nine. And when I would have these kind of religious fads in my life, you know, a season of really being really religious, I would go buy more good books. And I bought good books. I started buying Spurgeon long before I loved Spurgeon's Christ. And I bought Tozer. And, but when I was converted as a true Christian, I still bought books, but I made it my goal to buy books that would primarily show me the greatness and the beauty of Christ. And the other books, the how to do all these things in the life of a Christian, how to do this, those how-to books, I, I left them on the shelf. I didn't buy them. I bought the books that showed me God, and I have not regretted that. I have not made the investment in my soul that I should have. I've fallen far short of what I'd hoped, but I do not regret leaving the how-to books on the shelf and choosing the books that would show me Him. Because again, this is the first command, and from it, everything else will follow. If I can keep him before my eyes, that will deal with idolatry, but that will also deal with all the other issues. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me. All right, I have reminded myself of who my God is. Continually. Psalm 25, verse 15. My eyes are continually toward the Lord. His perfections, one at a time, in front of your eyes. Take the verses we've been memorizing as a church. Set them in front of your eyes. Take the time. It, it takes time. You can't just go from, you know, breakfast to Christ to work in five minutes. Carve out time in your day. Frequent times. Return there often. Set the Lord continually before your eyes until you feel that the, that the unique splendor of your God makes everything else 
so much less attractive. Be very practical. Write these things on a sticky pad and stick them on your refrigerator. Stick them on the, you know, the steering wheel of your car. Have them stuck to your lampstand beside your bed, you know, on the, on the mirror in your vanity when you get up and brush your teeth. Wherever you go, put little reminders. Place the Lord before your eyes continually. You can ask someone else to help you. You can have other Christians and you can say, I want to do this, so I would like you to hold me accountable. And would you ask me, you know, occasionally through the week, would you shoot me a text and say, how are you doing with that? Put the Lord before your eyes until like David, we say, one thing have I sought from the Lord and that I will seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To behold the beauty of the Lord. But you remember when we talked about the law, it's not just that there are certain things that are required to obey this law. And the things that are required are also commanded. So whatever it takes to have your heart full of him, devoted to him, wholeheartedly do those things, but also whatever should be avoided so as to avoid idolatry, avoid those things. You know yourself. Can you ask the Lord honestly, are there any things in my entertainment, in the music, in the things I see, in the things I listen to, in the things that I read, that cause my heart to drift toward the empty idols? We probably all have those that we can see, Will you, by the grace of God, remove them? Will you plead for God not to let you be satisfied with just adding a little more Jesus to the week, but really to get rid of any idol or anything that leads you to the idolatry, things that are nice, and other people may be able to enjoy them, but you know in your own soul they do dim the beauty of God to you, so for you, they should be avoided. What if you are not a Christian? Well, you know you owe God obedience. You say, yeah, but I'm a sinner, and so I can't obey the law perfectly. That doesn't matter. You still owe God obedience. You do know who can change you, right? You could go to the king himself, the king that you've lived against and disregarded his law, and you could come to him on his terms, which we see in the gospel, and you could cast yourself on his mercy You could hand yourself to him. In Isaiah 45, where God says over and over and over to an idolatrous group of Jews, he says, I am the Lord and there is none other. He then says this, and this is the verse that led young Charles Spurgeon to Christ. He says this, there is no God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Why not take that back to God and say, okay, since you are the only God and I owe you my allegiance and love and trust, my life, I would be terrified to request this of you, except you're the one that said it. I come from the ends of the earth. I'm spiritually far. Would you save me? Christ is an expert at saving every idol-worshipping 
self-deceived church member or not church member, Christ can save you from you so that when you look at God, you will gladly agree, He is God and there is no other. He is a righteous God and a Savior. And I have cast all the other hopes in the dirt so that I could have Him. And He would have me. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass.